this opportunity to address you, teach you on the Dhamma. When you listen to a Dhamma talk, the important thing is to open the mind up so that you are with what's being said rather than either agreeing, disagreeing, or, or uh, trying to argue at any point. What we want to do, the aim of Buddhist teaching is to open the mind in order to see, see the mind itself, direct experience of your own mind. This is what most people do not see in themselves. They see everything that is not themselves as being themselves. And that's the problem of the world. Why the world is so confused and so much anguish and despair and fear because people don't know themselves. They know about, they know a lot about everything. Modern People nowadays, educated people know a lot about everything, but that which is closest, nearest, that where the, all the pain and anguish and despair begin and end, that they don't know. Like being so close to something you can't see it. Something's too close you don't even notice it. And you might, you might notice that which is far away before you notice really know yourself. So we read biographies and about people thinking that helps us to understand human nature as we, as we read case histories, testimonials, biographies of people that we've heard of or haven't heard of or whatever. So we know a lot about, say, Napoleon, Hitler, President Kennedy, Henry VIII. Enormous volumes have been printed on all these people that we know about. But ourselves, we may not know at all. So listening to a Dharma talk isn't to, it is not to get information, not to acquire more information about Buddhism and such, but to Listen to the Dhamma, listen to yourself, in other words. Listen to the mind. Now the Buddhist approach isn't one where you're taking a position of agreement or disagreement on any issue. You're not here to, to decide whether I'm right or wrong in anything I say, but to note the effects of what I say on you. whether it brings interest or boredom, confusion, clarity, uh, hope or despair. We're not asking that, it, that even that you be inspired or find this at all interesting. But to note your own reaction to, say, just the sound of my voice and the things that I'm saying. So that you're opening the mind up to observe yourself rather than just trying to grasp hold of what I'm saying and maybe believing what I say is true or disbelieving. Now this way of, of listening is a very Buddhist way. The way the Buddha taught 
where most of us have been trained, conditioned, through our education, through our society, to listen to things in order to gather information. People writing notes and trying to store up information and tape recorders. <laughs> trying to store up information about this. Now we have all the equipment now, don't we? We have libraries, vast libraries, all kinds of electronic equipment now to to, to uh, preserve anything that's been said. So much money, so much time, energy has been invested in storing up information. And yet all information is a condition of our mind. And what we don't know is the mind itself. We become so enraptured, so attached, so deluded by the conditions of body and mind that we don't see the mind. We don't know the mind. So in listening to a Dhamma talk, to Dhammatesana, is to just watch and listen to yourself. The silent watcher, they call it the practice of the silent watcher, the silent listener. In other words, you're not commenting on anything. There's no need to go and grasp or judge or criticize about anything, but just observe that in yourself which tends to do that. That which doubts, that which hopes, that which expects, or that which uh, feels despair or depression, that which feels greed or lust, or that which feels hatred and anger, worry, confusion, depression. These are the conditions of the mind. Now the Buddha taught that these condition phenomena, if you if if you really listen and observe a condition as a condition. Whether it's a good one or a bad one, pleasant or painful, it doesn't matter. We begin to see that these are really not anything other than just that, changing conditions. But they're not people, they're not, they're not kind of permanent <coughs> personalities. <coughs> they're not anything that you can say is really yours or anyone else. Greed, when it goes through my mind, and greed when it goes through your mind, it's just greed. It's not Venerable Sumato, it's not Leonard, not Colin. It's just greed. Whether it's greed in my mind, going through this one, going through Collins, through Catherine, it's greed, that's all. It's not, it's not anything but just that. We begin to see it as anatta, not as a personal thing. Where, when you don't know this, when you've not investigated or understood the nature of your mind, you tend to regard it as a personal thing. Our problem with me is I'm greedy. I'm too greedy. That's my problem. That makes it sound like the greed that goes through your mind, you make that into, you attack, you project or create a perception of it as being a personal either virtue or fault. If you're attached to your virtues, 
you become arrogant and haughty. If you're attached to your faults, you become depressed, neurotic. <laughs> I even see them in our languages. They can say your faults, as if they were really yours. But say the, the unpleasant conditions that go through your mind, one tends to feel one shouldn't have them. Now, for example, in monastic life, being a Buddhist monk, one is a very high-minded, noble kind of idea, ideal set for a man, woman, to live this life. And so it's very, very set on a very high ideal. But then the conditions of the mind can still be mean and petty and nasty and so forth. But if you're attached to the ideal, then you feel terribly guilty about any conditions that go through your mind that don't live up to, say, uh, up to that ideal. So you develop guilt. You become uh, depressed. You feel you're worthless. Because you've attached to something very high-minded, something very noble, and then you... Uh, then when anything less than that becomes conscious, attains consciousness, you feel that you have slipped or that you are unworthy, that you are somehow not noble because the conditions of your mind aren't that way. Now the Buddhist position is not one of passing judgments like that, but just noting it. Being able to recognize knowing things as they are is what we call the Buddha. The Buddha is that which knows, that which is awake. So in our practice of meditation, we are practicing by being awake, aware of the conditions of the mind and body as just that. Now this is what we call practice, because the force of habit is one, the habits are always to attach to these things as me and mine. Because that's what they seem to be. It's how they seem according to the way we perceive, the way we've been conditioned to perceive ourselves and the world we live in. The conventional realities, the way things seem to be, and the way we've been conditioned to perceive, it seems like this is that we are separate, definite individuals. When you really think about yourself very much, when I think about myself very much, I, I feel totally separate from any of the rest of you. If I think about myself, about my family, my past, uh, what I've done, what I hope to do, the kind of personality I have, it seems so separate and alienated from anything else. There's nobody walking along the street. The way things seem to be, the way we perceive just people on the street as being strangers or people that we don't know. We feel alienated and separate. If you don't know them, you don't, you don't know what they might be. They might be pleasant or unpleasant or what. But that's in relationship to me to what I perceive myself to be. Now when I, 
when I'm convinced that I am this physical body, when, when I when this perception is strong in my mind that I'm this body that you see here, well then, this body is subject to People can uh, compliment it. They can say very nice things, or they can they can uh, slander it. They can admire it, or they can hate it. Uh, it can be damaged. It can be ill, sick. It can be hurt easily. It gets old, and then we know that it's capable of dying at any moment. These bodies are very uncertain conditions. And because we're so, if we seem to be these bodies, this is what the way it seems to be, because that seemingness is so real, because we never question that assumption, we never investigate the way things are, so we accept the assumption that somehow this is me, this body is me. Then, of course, we have to spend all our lives trying to protect it, hold on to it, uh, trying to keep it from being too uncomfortable, being upset when anybody criticizes or makes fun of it, trying to live in a way or make it so that people will say how lovely it is, trying to uh, protect it, keep it from being too painful, too unpleasant. But one thing you can be sure of is that bodies, their nature is to get old, get sick, and die. So no matter how careful you are, how much energy you put into trying to be useful and healthy, the body will inevitably take us to old age, sickness, and death. Now that's an important thing to recognize. I'm talking to some people recently who are in their 60s, and they've never contemplated like this. They've never thought about it in this way. So much of their life has been uh, the energy is put into trying to hold on to or to preserve youth. Good health. And in doing that, they've had to go through all kinds of operations and, and uh, so forth. Enormous bills, doctor's bills. Just trying to, to keep the body from Seeming, you know, from from getting kind, not willing to recognize that it's getting old, and then as it gets old, it weakens. The senses aren't so good. Senses fade, lose their strength. The body gets stiffer, and so and then death of the body. Now this body is because it is not ours. This is why we really can't uh, change it, its uh, pattern. Because it is born, and it grows up, then it gets old and dies. And this is the nature of the body. Of, and this is the, the pattern of all conditioned phenomena. All that we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and see. Follows this same pattern of beginning, arising, and passing. Now it would be pretty miserable if 
this is what we are. We are these bodies. This is what I am. What, do, what is there left? This old age and death. Some people will think, well, that's the way it is, so we might as well just forget about it and try to, to squeeze as much pleasure out of the few remaining years as we can. But even mentally, as you get older, you don't find the pleasure in life that you did when you were younger. The things that you enjoyed when you were younger aren't so enjoyable anymore as you get older. <laughs> and because people don't realize that, you find old people sometimes trying to act like young people by doing all the things that young people enjoy doing thinking that that will uh, somehow, because they found that so much fun, so much pleasure when they were young, they think they should have that same enjoyment when they're middle-aged or older, but they don't. So mentally, not only physically, but mentally, things are constantly changing. Just like when we were children, the things I used to enjoy doing when I was five years old, I no longer like to do. That may be eating. Basic kind of thing, but the kind of things that I used to be able to spend hours doing when I was a five year old boy, I could be bothered doing that. Because it's changed, not only physically changed, but emotionally, mentally changed. So those changes are, say, are what we are not. We're not any of those changing conditions. The child, we're not a child, we're not a middle-aged person, we're not an old person, we're not a, a man or a woman. These are what we call the conventional realities that if we investigate them, penetrate them with wisdom, we begin to free ourselves from that blind perception and all the pain and misery that goes along with that attachment to conditions which can never ever satisfy us. Just like you might think um, if I were wealthy then I'd be really happy and satisfied. So you spend all your, your life making a lot of money and then you get enormous amount of money, and you're only gratified temporarily, you're not satisfied forever, are you? There's no sensual thing that ever really satisfies us. You say we are temporarily gratified when we get what we want. You give me something I want, and I'm gratified temporarily, gratifies me, but it doesn't permanently satisfy me. I had, say, um, when when I was given this new arms bow, I was given the, I'd always wanted a stainless steel arms bow. In Thailand, you see, they used to, they never had stainless steel arms bow until a few years ago, and, uh, that you always had these steel, just steel ones that would rust. 
You had to spend so much time trying to keep the rust out of your arm bone. And then they started making stainless steel ones. They became a real status symbol among monastics. And then somebody gave me a stainless steel bowl. But it, it, it was not, it was, it didn't permanently satisfy me. Gratified me temporarily. In fact, it was only a couple of months ago I was thinking of trading it in for an old steel one. <laughs> we think, Maybe someone else, when we meet the right person. If I, there's somebody, there's this kind of romantic vision in, in European mythology anyway, that there's someone made in heaven for each one of us. And that when we meet that person, we'll be happy forever. Like Cinderella and Prince Charming. We keep thinking, when I meet that right person, the one that was made for me in heaven, will be the answer. All my suffering will be gone. We'll live happily ever after. But we know that's not true either. <laughs> that even when we meet the person that was made for us in heaven, it's still unsatisfactory. It gratifies us temporarily. The hope. Notice the, the movement of the mind. Always looking for something else. Even when you have everything, and everything is very pleasant, and you're surrounded by very nice people, there's nothing wrong, there's, the mind still moves, trying to find something else. Or it can start worrying about, maybe all these lovely things will be taken away from me. Or I see something threatening coming near and I have to I have to get rid of it. So the movement of the mind, say, the conditions of the mind are that which move towards something or trying to get something or get rid of something. And so when even when we get everything we want, the mind still operates like that. The more you have, then you still want more. Then you want to get rid of that which you don't want anymore. So there's the desire to get hold of something, to hold on to something, or the desire to annihilate. This you can see in your own mind. These two forces, these two energies. One trying to get, hold on to, the other trying to get rid of, push away. Now who is it or what is it that can watch this? that which is awake and that is aware of these of these two kinds of desire. Who is that? For convenience we call that the Buddha, the, the knowing, that which knows. And that which knows is not any personal thing. It's not, it's not my knowing. It's not Venerable Sumato's uh, talent or ability or unique ability at all. It's not anyone, it doesn't belong to anyone. But it's what all of us can.
can take refuge in is in that knowing, that clarity. And that's what we really mean when we say Bhutan Saranagatami. I take refuge in the Buddha. It's as much in it's the same as in men as in women. They, can can women be enlightened or or can men or what? Not a matter of man or woman, is it? None of these conditions will ever get enlightened. These conditioned things can only cease. <laughs> so these conditions, they don't expect them to ever get enlightened. They won't. When you do that, it'll only take you to despair. But note that they are conditioned. Just that constant, persistent reflection, investigating on these conditions, reminding yourself, because we forget, we so the pull of the sensual world is very powerful. These bodies are very powerful kind of uh, forces they're so subject to pain and unpleasant sensations, aren't they? The sensory world, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue. These sense organs that we, we have, we're so attached to what we see, to being able to see or hear, to taste things. Have you ever had a cold where you could no longer taste anything? How frustrating it is. How unpleasant is to have to eat food that you can't taste anymore. We do enjoy tasting things, smelling things. When bad stinking odors come near, how awful it is, how we want to get away. Or beautiful fragrance of flowers. What we hear. Very, now they've, they've uh, through modern technology, you can you can listen to the most incredible sounds now. These sounds that they make, record on tapes and records. Fantastic kind of uh, talent and ability the human beings produce and make most amazing and alluring and also frightening and horrifying sounds. So the sensory world is a very, very powerful impression on the mind, but that's all it is. The sensory world is a condition. It's not an absolute. It's not ultimate truth. And as human beings, our ability to free ourselves from the illusion or the delusion of the sensory existence as being me and mine, that's what we can do in this lifetime. This is what is within our ability as human beings. You see, this is what the Buddha was pointing to, was this ability of us as human beings to reflect on the way things are. So this is the way of the Buddha. We call the middle way. The middle way because it, it's a transcendent way, a letting go of extremes, of that extreme that seek something to get hold and attach, or the ex extreme to get rid of something and annihilate it. 
I just know from my own practice that watching my mind, I see, I, I can just, for years now I've been doing this, seeing that movement towards getting something or getting rid of something. And then we start taking a position, like we think, well, I shouldn't want anything. Very high-minded idea, isn't it? I shouldn't want anything. So I might believe that for a while, and what's wrong with me is I still want things that I shouldn't want anymore. I shouldn't want anything anymore. So I try to not want anything. <laughs> Doesn't work, does it? <laughs> because then you want not to want. It's complicated. It's confused that way. You want to not want. So you find that frustrating. People get strong desires to get rid of desire. You know that one. Meaning that you create more energy in this desire to annihilate and get rid of, which reinforces the desires that you're trying to get rid of, rather than letting them cease, they just reinforce. You created a cycle of habit. The desire comes, the desire to get rid of the desire, and it, you, it becomes a cycle, a repetitive cycle. Sangsara means the watta sangsara, watta sangsan, is the cycle, endless cycle that go on, because we don't, we never let them cease. We don't know how to let them cease. We just keep reinforcing them. They just keep going round and around and around. Now the Buddha teaching is one where he pointed to the way that a human being like you, like myself, can let these cycles cease. It's not beyond, it's not, you don't have to be Superman or Wonder Woman. <laughs> don't have to be a special kind of uh, unique creation. But this teaching that the Buddha laid down was, was for human beings. Now a human being, right, we, we might take that for granted that we are all human beings. We're all human beings. But we might all have human being bodies, human-like bodies, but mentally we may not be that way at all. We're still caught up in the beliefs of this and that, following the habits of our desires, eating, sleeping, drinking, carrying on, just following the momentum of habit, means that we aren't, we haven't reached that level of humanity yet that you can observe and investigate. Now, there are a lot of human beings that, that look like human beings, but they still aren't really to that level yet. In other words, they can't reflect on themselves yet. So, Buddhist teach, the Buddha established his teaching, established the Sangha of monks, in order that 
this particular teaching could be carried through time to be made available for potential human beings. So that the awakening of a being who is human to being human means that we're awakened to the Dhamma, to the truth. The Buddha is the way that we're awakened through that Buddha knowing, through that alertness, that awareness, that awareness, that clarity, mental clarity that you can observe your own dullness. Even when you're dull and sleepy, you can observe that dullness and sleepiness. You know that, oh, I'm sleepy, I'm so tired. And then you get caught in the sleepiness of your habit but there's also that which can reflect, can investigate that very dullness, dull mental state. And that which investigates and knows isn't dull, isn't sleepy. It's the awakened one, that which is awake. And so, as I said before, this isn't a personal thing, so we still do make no claim to it as being any personal attainment. You don't go around saying, I am the awakened one. <laughs> Unless you're a bit daft, misunderstand the teaching. Don't make claims that you, that's you, because that's another uh, delusion. Not a matter, it's not a matter of claiming that, but of being that which is awake. If you are that, then there's no need to claim it. You only claim it when when you uh, when you don't when you're not awake when you're heedless and you go around saying I am the awakened one. <laughs> now this is important for you to consider this kind of teaching because this is a at this time, there's a great need for this kind of awakening. There always has been. You can see just the history of human civilization is so fraught with so much violence and selfishness and human people doing the most dreadful things to each other. And now we're on the verge of of a uh, of a time that could be the most horrendous of any, having super weapons where you could blow up so many people, blow up the whole earth, that it's important that each one of us put forth this effort to being awake, because it's the way that the only hope lies in in our lives, in each one of us. Don't put any hope in the governments of any country. <laughs> or in, quote, peace talks in Geneva. <laughs> that's not where it will, that's not where peace is. Peace is your true nature. Peace is where you can abide 
wherever you are, wherever your body happens to be, whatever is going on, no matter how it feels, whether it's old or sick or whatever, in good health or bad health, peace is the, your true nature. And you begin to, when you realize that, you abide in the peace of your mind rather than in the conditions of it. Rather than seeking ideal conditions for your mind, you can let go of the conditions. Let things cease. Let things dissolve. Now that peace is common to all of us. It's not mine in contrast to yours. It's where we incline to and where we merge. Where all of us merge. Where there's no longer, we no longer feel this alienation that we feel, that we, that we seem to feel when we're attached to the body, to the emotions to the perception. Like I can sit up here and I can perceive you all in various ways. What do I do when I'm sitting here? I'm sitting here. Things are just like this, as they are right now. And I can create all kinds of people out of the perceptions I have of you. According to the mood I'm in. If I'm in a jolly mood, then I... Well, they're really lovely people. Love these people. England's a wonderful country. Jolly old England. Hail to the Queen. I'm in a good mood. English people have been very kind to me. So the perceptions all come out positive. They say, Venerable Sumedo, you're the greatest thing that's ever happened to England. England's a wonderful country. Or I can sit up here. People have been very difficult, critical, ungrateful, suspicious, misunderstanding everything. A hopeless country. I'm going back to Thailand. Now, where does that come from? Where does England come from? The good, jolly old England that I love. Wouldn't think of leaving. Or the England that I'm fed up with, had enough of and want to leave. That's something that comes out of here. It's something I create. Out of like and dislike. Praise and blame, doesn't it? We all do that with 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 each other, with ourselves, with the things around us. Living in a monastery. Some of the monks and nuns, they're very good. Never complain. They're really good. Couldn't live without them. But then there's those others that complain and cause trouble and do things that annoy you and never seem to do it rightly the way that you want them to. And you'd like to wish they'd go. <laughs> now where does that come from? That wanting the ones you like to stay and the ones you don't like to go. That comes out of the mind, doesn't it? That's what we create that's what we create around the way things are. When we let go of that through understanding it, 
We abide in the peace where we merge so that we can have the... We, we're no longer exaggerating or making problems out of anything. The disobedient monk, the thankless, the, the uh, ungrateful, the annoying, or the devoted, lovely, adoring. We see these things operating, but we make no claim. We have no attachment. We let them all go. We find the peace of our mind. We abide in that peacefulness. And that's where we merge. The good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, men, women, Buddhists, Christians, Muslims, whatever. All conditions merge in the unconditioned. So in our mindfulness, our abiding in, in this mental clarity, the more we practice this way, and the more we begin to let go of these cycles of habits, when we let go, then the cycles have a way of ceasing, they're not, no longer being cycles. Then we begin to experience the bliss of an empty mind. So an empty mind is like a spacious mind. Things can come and go, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, confused or tranquil. But there's space for everything, or nothing, the way of no preference. So I offer this for your reflection for this afternoon.